Ever notice what happens when you return to your family of origin? Maybe you go home for the holidays, or maybe your parents come to visit. Perhaps you take a trip with your siblings, or you go all out together for a family meal. Regardless of the circumstance, and no matter how old you are now, some dark magic or scary psychology casts its spell, and all of a sudden, you are your childhood self again. It may be way easier to see this in a significant other than it is to admit it about yourself, but we all do it. The grown man reverts to a prepubescent boy. The confident woman curls back into her adolescent shell. The corporate CEO is reduced to fart jokes around his brothers. The successful, creative entrepreneur can no longer make a decision about pie if her mother is around. Our earliest family roles and characters are easiest to slip back into when we're around those people who knew us first and who made us who we are today. I'm Sarah Stone, and this is Dream Big, a podcast by The Gathering. Joseph's story today, and it ends in grand dramatic fashion with the whole family finally getting back together. You'll remember that Joseph, after more than a decade of enslavement, wrongful accusations, imprisonment, abandonment, and dream interpretations, has finally found himself with a pretty cushy Egyptian government job. At the ripe old age of 30, he was a vizier. Fancy title, Remember Jafar from Disney's Aladdin, the sinister man with Iago the parrot in tow? Well, Jafar is a vizier. That's the only vizier in pop culture I'm aware of, so maybe that reference is helpful? Maybe not. The point is, Joseph was the man, and everybody knew it. For seven years in this role, Joseph followed through with his pitch to Pharaoh that got him the job in the first place. He collected one-fifth of all that Egypt produced each year. He stored it up, preserved it, dried the grains, salted the meats, sugared the fruits, corked all the wine. He set it all aside under Pharaoh's authority. That seems like excessive excess. Storehouses stuffed to the brim with more food and provision than any nation should ever need. But Joseph was holding fast to the dream, the one that Pharaoh had. Joseph the Dreamer has never underestimated the power of dreams. And he can't get those skinny, scrawny cows out of his mind, the ones that gobble up the fat cows. Surrounded by surplus and abundant fields and a fertile season that seems it will never end, he knows winter is, I mean, famine is coming. And it does. Year 8. The rains cease... The desert ground cracks. The river slows to a trickle, then a drip, and then vanishes. The green palms shrivel. Dates fall to the ground unripe. 
The crops in the field bend and break and blow away in the wind. The earth refuses to put forth life. And stomachs begin to rumble. The stores of individual families start to dwindle. They've eaten all they have and shared with their neighbors too. And now, with hope and desperation, all of Egypt collectively turns toward Joseph. And the distribution begins. There is enough. There's plenty. The people will be fed. The people will live. Because the storehouses are full, more than full. The dreadful dream has come true, but the dream interpreter was ready, and so Egypt will thrive. But the drought extended far beyond Egypt's borders. Natural disasters have never been respecters of the fabricated boundaries of humans. People in neighboring lands found their tummies growling. Canaan, not that far away, was getting a little hungry. You remember who lives in Canaan? A certain patriarch named Jacob a.k.a. Israel, and his 11 remaining sons. Their fields are sparse. Their livestock is perishing. But word on the street is that Egypt's got food. So Dad sends the boys off to fetch some. Well, 10 of them anyway. Everyone goes but Benjamin. You'll remember he's the youngest. He and Joseph are the two sons of beloved wife Rachel. May she rest in peace. So with Joseph presumably dead, Benny soon took on the role of daddy's favorite. There was no way Jacob is letting him out of his sight. Talk about a helicopter parent. The ten brothers are off and joining the hordes of travelers making their way to bountiful Egypt. Imagine the scene. A huge Egyptian warehouse, a BC Walmart distribution center, if you will. It's hot, dry outside, people are hungry. Many have traveled for weeks, coming to buy food for their families. They smell, they're desperate, they speak so many different languages. It's a noisy situation and everyone needs food. If you've ever seen a gaggle of fifth grade soccer players at a pizza party after a game, you know what's happening here. It's barely controlled chaos, and Joseph is the one controlling it. Not a movement happens in that room that he doesn't see. Not a transaction takes place that he doesn't know about. So when ten brothers from Canaan stagger in, sheepskin clad, gaunt faces, eyes wide and bewildered, Joseph's world comes to a screeching halt. The buzz and hum of the room grows dull in his ears. Time slows down while his heart races and his lens filters out everything but those ten faces. The ten faces he last saw, staring down at him in a pit. A lifetime has passed, his to be exact, and suddenly memories he has buried deep within come rushing to the surface. He has lived more life without them than with them, and yet his world is rocked. Joseph, who is now nearly 40, becomes that 17-year-old kid again for a moment. His brothers are here. His older brothers have come to Egypt, and they have no idea he is here. He pulls himself together quickly, because time is back to its real speed, and here they come. 
They are walking toward his throne, and as he stares, speechless, unrecognized, they bow down before him. Faces to the ground. And it all comes rushing back. His dream, the one he had when he was 17. The Bible says, When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. It's almost as if those dreams had been forgotten, and suddenly, as he looks out, he doesn't see his brothers anymore. He sees the eleven stalks of grain bowing before the one. What is happening? But Joe has learned some life lessons in Egypt, and he keeps it cool. Well, kind of. What happens next is a perfect storm of Joseph's righteous indignation, personal pain, revenge, and just a solid dose of his 17-year-old cocky self getting under his brother's skin again. Some things with siblings never change. Remember, they don't have the foggiest idea of who he is. And he knows it. He looks different. He's been through hair and makeup already that morning. He's dressed in Egyptian royal garb. He speaks Egyptian now and chooses not to switch back to Hebrew. He uses an interpreter with him instead. For all they know, he was born and bred Egyptian royalty. So he plays it up for a while. He's harsh with them, demanding to know where they've come from, asking oddly personal questions about their family, their father, their other brother and why he's missing. He accuses them of being spies and finally throws them all in prison for three days. Ah, Revenge is sweet. How good it must have felt to give them a taste of the fear and uncertainty that he had suffered through at their hands. Except it didn't satisfy. Revenge may seem sweet, but reconciliation is far sweeter. And so Joseph hauls them out of prison. He's still not ready to make himself known, so he sends them back to Canaan, with some food of course, but demanding that they come back with their youngest brother, the one closest to Joseph. To ensure their return, he holds back Simeon as ransom, the second son of Leah in exchange for the second son of Rachel. Gotta love a symbolic hostage situation. Off they go, back to Canaan. But upon their arrival, they discover that money has been placed back in each of their sacks. The brothers are terrified. Now they will be accused of being thieves. Father Jacob is appalled at how the whole escapade has turned out. He's lost another son, he's been framed for espionage, and now his beloved baby boy is being demanded as payment. What's an old dad to do? Well, he does nothing. For a while. They eat the food that was sent and pretend like they didn't just leave a brother to rot in prison. I'm sure Simeon's wife was real excited about this turn of events. Like, WTF, where's my man? But eventually the food runs out again. Jacob tells the brothers to go back and get more from Egypt. But they know better than to show their faces without Benjamin. The weird Egyptian dude that cared like way too much about their family dynamics was pretty clear they needed to bring him if they wanted their other brother back. Jacob gets very dramatic and emotional about this, but Judah steps in. Judah, now quite a bit older and wiser, having lost two sons of his own, has a heart-to-heart with his dad and promises Benjamin's safe return. 
Finally, Jacob consents and sends them on their way again with bags of locally sourced, organically grown Canaan delicacies like honey, pistachios, and almonds to take as gifts. Wait, we're in a famine, right? What's with the legumes? Are those famine resistant? So many questions, but that's not the bigger point. I digress. Anyhow, entrance to Egypt, take two. This time around, Joseph is ecstatic to see Benjamin, but he doesn't let it show. He goes and cries in private because he's so overwhelmed, but then pulls it together and decides to throw a big feast for his family, who still doesn't know they are his family. They're starting to get a little weirded out by this guy, especially because of the mind games he plays by seating them around the table in their birth order. How did he know? Everybody eats, and Joseph sends them back on the road to Canaan with more food. Again, their money is returned to them. And worst of all, this time, Joseph's fancy silver cup is planted in the top of Benjamin's bag. They don't make it far before Joseph's goons are upon them and cart them all back, accusing them of being spies and thieves. Judah stumbles all over himself with apologies, but Joseph is only interested in one of the eleven. He's willing to let them all go, but will keep Benjamin as a slave. You can feel the weight of the judgment as it passes over them all, hearts sinking to their feet as they know this is the one thing that simply cannot come to pass. Father Jacob will perish if they return without his current favorite son. After a long, shocked silence, Judah speaks up again. In a cinematic and poetically redemptive turn, presumably with grand hand gestures, Judah, a man who 20 years prior sold his father's favorite son into slavery, is now the one stepping forward to be enslaved so that the father's favorite son might go free. He's willing to give his life in exchange for the most vulnerable one among them. This may be the story of Joseph, but in many ways, it's really the story around Joseph. It's the story of Israel, the nation and its origin, the story of a family that became a people, the story of siblings at odds who still, at the end of it all, need one another to survive. It's a story of redemption and a foreshadowing of a redeemer. It's from Joseph's family, but not Joseph's line, that the Savior of the world would come. Jesus, descendant of brother Judah, would millennia later be the one to lay down his life for the freedom of humanity, the beloved children of God. But we haven't quite finished Joseph's chapter in all this. Whether it's Judah's impassioned plea, or the look of terror on Benjamin's face, or the flood of childhood memories drowning his stern composure, Joseph finally breaks down. He loses it, completely falls apart. Chapter 45 begins, and I quote, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Send everyone away from me! So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, 
and the household of Pharaoh heard it. That's some next-level weeping. Like an all-out ugly man cry. Smears his eye makeup and everything. The tension is broken. The revenge is over. The game is up and the forgiveness begins to waft into the room. The brothers scoop up their jaws off the floor as Joseph reveals the truth to them that God has revealed to him. They need not feel distressed or angry with themselves about their treachery oh so many years ago because God was at work in all of it. Joseph says to them, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant of earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. With everything that has happened over 20-some years framing this current moment, Joseph can now see the fullness of his dream. He can see clearly at 40 what he couldn't see at 17. That the image of his family bowing down before him was not simply to feed his own ego. It wasn't a dream about holding power over them, ruling them, subjugating them. It was a dream about saving them, preserving their very lives, and in doing so, preserving a remnant of God's people. The people of Israel would not perish in this drought. They would be protected and live and flourish. God's promise to great-grandfather Abraham was carried out through the painful, unpredictable, colorful, faithful life of Joseph, and he holds none of it against his brothers. From here, he sends them off once again with abundant gifts for his father and instructions to bring him back to Egypt. And they do, in grand fashion. This humble, tent-dwelling family, fathers, sons, daughters, wives, children, 70 people in all, rolls back into Egypt in Pharaoh's own aftermarket-modified wagon fleet, complete with vanity plates reading 12 bros, sent by Joseph himself. Pharaoh, out of his mad respect for Joseph, gives his family their pick of the land, and they settle in the region called Goshen. This would become Israel's home in Egypt for generations to come. Another 400 years they would be here, for better and for worse, until another dream takes hold. The dream of their freedom and a land to call their own. But that's another story. Another book, by the name of Exodus, for another time. As for Genesis and Joseph, we've come to the end. What began in youth ends in wisdom. What began in arrogance ends in forgiveness. What began in hateful separation ends in hopeful reunification. What began as a messy family ends in, well, a messy family. But what began as a dream ends in life. Real life. Life in the face of death. Life for generations to come. And that's what God does with our dreams. 
Our dreams are never meant for us as a thing to hold on to. They are meant for us to be a part of. A dream that God takes hold of will bring life to the people around us. Despite hardship and uncertainty and bends in the road, it will nourish people who are hungry for life and bring about the impossible. The dream was never meant for the dreamer. It was meant for the ones about whom he dreamed. Dream Big is a podcast by The Gathering. Our show is hosted by me, Sarah Stone, written by me, Evie Martin, Megan O'Brien, Danae Bowers, and Matthew Moore, edited, mixed, and produced by Matthew Moore. Our theme song is by Ross Christopher. If you enjoyed Dream Big, let us know. Leave us a review or email us at dreambigpod at gmail.com and let us know what you thought. Thanks for listening.